You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. You may be seated. Thanks for standing for the reading of God's Word. Uh, We are realizing that the book of Esther is one giant test to to, uh, test people's pronunciation of words, (laughs) right? So many... Uh, difficult words here, names, etc. But thank you, John. Uh, kids' bags, as a reminder, are in the hallway, so if that serves you. We also have kids' sermon notes, so you can grab those. They're just to the left of the table out there, along with some coloring sheets. All right, hope you got your Bible in hand, because you're just going to put your finger basically in Esther 3, and we're just going to walk through um, this particular chapter. It's as if you know, we have the story, or you're watching a movie, and this is the part of the movie or the story where the dark cloud <laughs> kind of comes in. This is where the plot thickens, as they say. And as I've been saying uh, thus far, the book of Esther is about the providence of God working in and through flawed men and women. Part of what we're seeing in the book of Esther is that we're kind of stripping away some romantic pictures or views that we have of Bible characters. We tend to romanticize, oh, look at Abraham, and then you realize what he did to Sarah, you know. Look at Moses, and then, well, then he killed somebody. (laughs) We're actually, these are real people who were set in real time, who were very conflicted. And we see a lot of that here in the book of Esther. As we walk through this chapter, I'll be slowing down to show several mini-lessons. That's kind of what I'm calling them. There's four or five along the way this morning. Several mini-lessons from the book of Esther. The book of Esther is this historical narrative. And a way to apply historical narratives is to learn a little bit from the characters that we read about. So we'll be doing a little bit of that this morning. So let me pray, because I need God's help. And then we'll dive into his text. Heavenly Father, we come under your word this morning, knowing that every single chapter, every single verse, every single book is part of a greater narrative, a greater story that you're showing us. And so we come under your inerrant and authoritative word. Speak to us and instruct us through Esther 3. I pray this in Jesus' name. You should never be surprised to hear me reference movie series such as Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, um, Harry Potter. And I, and I know in some Christian circles, uh, people object to these movies, but never be surprised if they come out of this mouth, because I love them. Um, I tend to be comfortable with these movies for, for various reasons. Um, no more important is that these movies project a battle between good and evil. I tell this to my kids all the time, whatever we're watching. If there's, if there's a moment where I, if I got the remote nearby and I can show a lesson, I'll pause it, it drives them nuts, but I do it. And I'm like, do you see what's going on here? There's tension. Why? Because there's good in the world and there's evil in this world. And this is a metaphor or analogy of what's going on all around us. And then I get done with my teaching and they're like, finally, just press play. Not only do they project the struggle between good and evil, but they demonstrate the complexity, just talking about these movies that I like, the complexity of good and evil within people. 
there are times when the battle between good and evil is like cut and dried, right? You get it, you see it, it's clear. It's easy to discern the good guys from the bad guys. And there are times when the battle is gray. We're not quite sure. The battle between good and evil appears gray when we look at the particulars of a particular person. People live complicated lives, and a person's motives are sometimes hard to figure out. Frankly, only God ultimately knows what's going on in the human heart. The book of Esther, on the one hand, is black and white. It's a clear battle between good and evil. But there's also a little bit of gray. There are times when we can connect a motive with an action. It makes sense. This person did that, and here's why, and that's not cool, or whatever. We see that. And there are other times when a motive is not apparent, and the action is dubious, and we are left wondering, why'd you do that? Circle back to last week. Why did Mordecai take Esther right up to the citadel when he fully knew what was going to happen to Esther? We don't know. We just don't know. When we drill down into the details of Esther, and as the plot unfolds, we do receive a glimpse of what God is doing. We'll see more in here in Esther 3. But the book of Esther also forces us to deal with the sobering reality that the battle between good and evil is not a theory. It's not entertainment. It's real. Here is the sobering reality for the people of God. There is an enemy at work in this world that hates you. hear that? Hates you because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Because you are a part of the people of God. The manifestations of evil take on different shapes. There are times when evil is subtle, lurking in the dark, and there are other times when evil is blatantly obvious, and it just causes a person to fall on their knees in prayer and fasting, as we're going to see next week. There are generations of people in America, and this is me kind of reading the tea leaves as I look at culture, there are generations of people in America who do not know how to handle or think about the battle between good and evil. For a moment, let's back away from what we read in Holy Scripture because just kind of look at the world. A man who lived through World War II knows the face of evil, or at least his perception of evil, right? Last week, I mentioned the, the Uyghurs of Western China. They are practicing Muslims living in a government, living in a, in a country where the government is God. And they are being relocated to concentration camps or re-education camps because they don't worship the government. They worship Allah, which we wouldn't agree with, but you see the conflict. Do you think they know the face of evil? There are times when a person exists in a corrupt system, and there are times when a person is confronted by another evil person. Again, we have both in Esther. We have the system working against the Jews, as we're going to see this morning, and then we see actually the face of evil in, in, an, in an actual person. And we should not be shocked at the existence of evil in the world that was initially made good. After sin entered the world, Genesis 3, what happened in Genesis 4? 
I mean, I'm not trying to give you a Bible test, but what happened in Genesis 4? Cain kills Abel. Like, that didn't take long, at least, you know, when you talk about literary speaking, just turn the page. It's like whiplash. Okay, sinner of the world. Now what? Oh, murderer. The system did not make Cain do it. His wicked, sinful, and jealous heart killed Abel. In the book of Exodus, God's people were enslaved. Remember that? Now, was that a corrupt system stacked against the people of God while they were enslaved in Egypt? Yeah, absolutely. Pharaoh created a system to enslave people to do his bidding. After God's people were miraculously led out of Egypt, do we continue to see the face of evil? Without a doubt. You can look at Scripture, you can look at the world. Cannot deny evil exists. And today, do God's people continue to face opposition and persecution? For sure. I'm pushing hard on the point here. I really am. And I, and I acknowledge it. I was writing this. I, I had it in my mind. I really want to push this particular point because there is a movement afoot to pursue some type of utopia here on earth. And I'm here to tell you with God's word in mind that this, on this side of heaven, there is no utopia. And that's certainly true for Christians. Yes, we may pursue good on behalf of others for the glory of God. Yes, may we live in a way that allows families and communities to flourish. Yes, we need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to see people set free from the bondage of sin and death. Yes, all of that. But the pursuit of good of others and flourishing of communities is confronted by constant resistance. Constant resistance. Like my mind's just going to Star Wars right now. I'm not going to get into it, but I can catalog all day all the battles taking place between good and evil and the resistance that takes place. And whenever you have the good of the gospel at work, this is like one of the principles here. Whenever you have the good of the gospel at work, you will have resistance. When you see God at work in your life, don't be shocked to see resistance. We see in the book of Esther a snapshot of the battle between good and evil since the fall of humanity. That's kind of what we're seeing in Esther. Before we begin to see how evil unfolds in chapter 3, here's a recap of chapters 1 and 2. It'll be real quick. Chapters 1 and 2 serve as our introduction into the book of Esther. Esther opens up with a king throwing a party. It lasted 180 days. After that party, the king throws another party. It was shorter. It lasted seven days. On the seventh day, the king wants his prized queen, Queen Vashti, to come out. and He wants to show her off, basically. But she refuses the request of the king. Her refusal resulted in her dismissal. The king's like, you're not going to obey? Get out. It was a quick hook. You're gone. But her dismissal allowed for the opportunity for Esther to become queen. And it's in that scene where we actually see the providence of God. How she become, became queen is questionable at best, but the king used a wicked process to put Esther into one of the most powerful positions in the known world. 
Chapter 2 ends with a complete scene change. The camera kind of moves away from Esther and right toward Mordecai. Mordecai, Esther's cousin, hears about a plot to kill the king. He reports the plot, and Mordecai's good deeds were written down in the book of Chronicles. So I've caught you up, but here's what I want you to know. God was at work through all of that. Like Mordecai didn't happen to be at the right place at the right time to hear a plot to kill the king. God was providentially at work. The same, thing he, same re- way he was providentially at work to bring Esther to a place of prominence. Chapter 3 begins by introducing us to a new character, Haman. Haman becomes the picture of evil in our story. Haman's motives are more evident than our other characters in our story, and his motives are wicked to the core. Haman is also a powerful politician. Take a look at verse 1. After these things, King Ashuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all other officials who were with him. We don't know how or why, but Haman is elevated to actually the second most powerful person in the world. You could argue maybe is it the queen, is it Haman, who knows. He's powerful. He's kind of like a modern-day prime minister. In England, uh, Queen Elizabeth is the most powerful person, at least like on paper. But functionally, the prime minister, Boris Johnson right now, pulls all the strings, right? He's in charge of the government. In Esther, King Ashuerus is the most powerful person in the world. You know, the buck stops with him. But he just gave Haman the keys to the castle and functionally the kingdom as well. Haman is allowed to do everything and anything except basically sit on King Ashuerus' throne. Now here's the first mini lesson from verse 1. Without getting into the deep ends of, end of politics, several truths are encapsulated in Haman's role. First, the ones who rule over you have a tremendous amount of authority over you. I mean, it seems like obvious to say that, but it should cause us to think, who is in charge of us? Right? Second, regardless of who is in control, God is sovereign and providentially at work. Right? Democrat, Republican, Independent, Green Party. Like God is providentially at work. You might not like the person in office. You might not agree with the politics. But never forget for a moment, God is sovereign and actually sets up kings and puts them down. Sure, go advocate. You know, go to the Capitol, do your thing. Great, I like doing that. I got my opinions. But God is still sovereign. For the Christian, there's always hope, regardless of who's in charge, because of what God has done and what he will continue to do through Christ. Always hope. We might not always see it, and i got to tell you, as we're going to look through Esther 3, i gotta, I got to bet Mordecai didn't see much hope in Haman being in charge. But there's always hope. Always hope. All right. First mini lesson over. Verse 1 tells us more about Haman. And it tells us more than what you may initially think. Haman is an Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. That is interesting. That is worth pointing out. What does all this have to do with Esther and the pending conflict? Have you ever heard of the, uh, the Hatfield and the McCoys? That whole story, that whole background, what's going on, right? 
It's about two families that like hate each other. You got one family living on the Kentucky side and across the rivers, West Virginia, and the other family is kind of living on the, on the other side. And basically what happens to start this conflict is that um, the Civil War took place and there was a family member who was part of the Union and the other family didn't like that. And so when he basically got discharged because he got hurt in battle, the other family went and killed the guy. And that started decades and decades of conflict between two families. Well, what we're about to see between the family tree of Haman and the family tree of Mordecai is way worse. To understand why Mordecai and Haman act the way they do throughout this chapter, we actually need to know the backstory. We read that Haman is an Agagite, indicating he is a descendant of the Amalekite king Agog. Okay, so what's the big deal here? We all have an extended family and people are always coming from somewhere, right? Let me take you to Exodus 17. After Israel was set free from slavery in Egypt, they wandered in the desert, attempting to make their way to the promised land. Along the way, Amalek and his forces attacked the people of God. So they're like, they're like okay, we need to get to the promised land. And this other people came and attacked the people of God. The battle between the people of God and the Amal- <clears throat> excuse me, Amal- Amalekites, <laughs> big words, is so significant that after Israel wins the battle, a memorial was created to enshine, enshrine the victory. Memorializing victory after war kind of continues to this day. And listen to what Moses writes down about his enemy. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Like, that is pretty intense. I'm going to blot out the memory. We're going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And so Moses builds an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, Hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. God was not happy with Amalek, and it seems they are the face of evil for God's people. Well, there's more to the story. Fast forward to 1 Samuel 15, and the people of God and the Amalekites are at it again. In 1 Samuel 15, we read how the Lord did not forget the ambush of the Amalekites from Exodus 17. So Saul is told to destroy the king and all their stuff. If they own a donkey, kill it. If they have gold, get rid of it. Don't take anything. The Amalekites are wicked to the core, and they need to be wiped off the face of the earth. Well, Saul takes his army into battle. They win, but Saul doesn't obey the Lord. He takes some of their stuff, and he does not kill the king. When Samuel, the prophet at the time, confronts Saul, he gives an excuse that that he would use the sheep and oxen as a sacrifice to the Lord. It's really a half-hearted excuse because it doesn't explain why Saul actually didn't kill the king. Saul was caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Here's the bottom line. Saul disobeyed God, and that's a no-no. Samuel sums up the blunders of Saul by saying, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, 1 Samuel 15, 22. So that's kind of the backstory of what's going on here in Esther 3. Haman is a part of a family line that has been in constant tension with God's people. Since the time of the Exodus, the tension has only increased between the Amalekites and the people of God. I mean, we can see that throughout the world right now. Different people groups in tension with other people groups. 
The tension is probably ethic, but it's actually primarily religious. Here's a yet another mini lesson from this backstory that, that we see also in Esther 3. Throughout history, a constant rub between God's people, people and the culture is that the God of the Bible does not allow room for assimilation and secretism, right? God calls a people to himself, and God calls people to worship him and worship him alone. That's part of the reason why God does what he does throughout the Old Testament. He's telling Israel, I need you to worship me. Stop worshiping all these idols. Don't be tempted to that. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who has cared for you, provided for you. Over and over and over again. God's people have always been called to be a distinct people and a blessing to the surrounding culture, not to acquiesce to the culture. These truths are constant to this day. And there's more to our story. Mordecai, as we know, is a Jew. We know this, but we read in the previous chapter that Mordecai is also a Benjaminite. You can now begin to see all the pieces in God's providence and how this all fits together. We should also note that hostility toward the people of God extends forward to the New Covenant people. In the New Testament, we read how Christians, whether from Jewish background or Gentile background, are recipients of opposition. Now, we do not want to overgeneralize the tension between the Amalekites and God's people, so I found this statement by Christopher Ashe really helpful. He says, This does not mean that each and every Amalekite was one of God's enemies. It means that the prevailing culture of Amalek was enmity to the people of God. Down to the centuries, the Amalekites were vicious, hardened enemies of all God's people. To become a friend of God's people, you had to distance yourself from the Amalekite loyalty. As we see, Haman will not distance himself from Amalekite loyalty. If anything, he goes all in on Amalekite loyalty. And this is the next mini lesson. For a moment, I want you to try... I want to try and help you with your Bible reading and then offer an encouragement from what we see here in, in just one verse. Like, I haven't got the verse two yet. And there's so much that we're, we can learn here. First, it is good to slow down and see the connections throughout Scripture. We tend to be so fast, right? And sometimes it's good to read in chunks, but sometimes it's really good to slow down. As I often say, the details of any given passage are connected to the greater story arc. The terms Agagite and Benjaminite are not insignificant. The details are part of the whole picture. So when the author of Esther takes it upon himself to identify the family lines of Haman and Mordecai, we can see how the details are connected to the whole. Like, here, here's an analogy. In recent years, I have taken upon myself, with the help of good friends, to learn how to fix my own car, Right? Before that, I had no idea what was going on under the hood, right? No idea. But the moment I started turning a wrench, you know, open the hood, turn the wrench, get your hands greasy, you begin to see how everything's connected, right? Like, oh, that alternator's connected to the battery, which is connected to that. I mean, all of a sudden, it's beginning to make sense. Now, I can't do it all, but it's making a lot more sense. Holy Scripture is connected to itself much more than we probably realize. And here's the encouragement. When you can see the connections, your, your confidence in the inerrancy of Scripture, it is without error, in the sufficiency of Scripture, in the authority of Scripture, actually grows. 
Because you're just like, Poof. I'm beginning to see how it's all connected. Your confidence increases. Your trust increases as you see how Exodus, 1 Samuel, and Esther, written by different people during different generations, are connected. And they're ultimately telling you about the same story of redemption. Mini lesson over. The friction between the people of God and the Amalekites explains the reaction of Mordecai in verse 2. Here's verse 2. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. It's tempting to read the response of Mordecai and compare it to Daniel. Daniel 6, for example, Daniel in the lion's den, and Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a bunch of guys who said, you got to worship someone else or an image, and they're like, no, we worship God and God alone. I'm not going to bow. Like, when we first read that, our temptation is, is to go to that. I'm here to tell you that's actually not the right reading of Mordecai's actions. In these separate stories, we, we read how men of God refuse to worship anyone but God. We commend these men for their faith in the face of pressure and persecution. But I do not think Mordecai responds with a similar amount of faith or courage. What's feeding the emotions and actions of Mordecai is the centuries-long hostility between the Amalekites and Jews. I mean, this is where the complexity of a person kind of gets in the way. You might still commend Mordecai for his actions, but his motive, in my mind, is different from what we read in Daniel. It seems to me Mordecai is making a mountain out of a molehill, right? As the old proverb goes. We know that he has no problem bowing to authority. Why do we know that? He's more than willing to bow to the king because if he doesn't, he's dead. That's the kind of culture he was in. Mordecai had assimilated into Persian culture. I think Mordecai is making a stand on really a secondary issue. If anything, his actions inflame the issue between the Jews and the Amalekites. Here's another mini lesson. I think we can learn something from the actions of Mordecai. I mentioned last week that we need to be careful not to overly moralize this book. Be very careful not to do that. There are moral lessons, but let's not overdo it. But we can learn from how these actors respond. I agree with Pastor Ian Deweed that the church must learn to major on the majors and not let secondary or tertiary issues be a place to make unequivocal stance. Here's what Deweed says. What a vivid picture. He's talking about verse 2. Of many of our churches, we are expert gnat strainers seeding out with precision the wrong movies, the inappropriate clothes and hairstyles, the sinful styles of music, and minor deviances from traditional church practice wherever and whenever we encounter them. Yet, at the same time, I think he's absolutely right, at the same time, we may easily tolerate in ourselves and those around us a camel-sized sins such as gossip about others, or pride in our own accomplishments and prayerlessness. We won't bow the knee to Haman, come what may, but we will easily fall for many greater sins. Now, 
Deguid is not saying you should not watch inappropriate movies and listen to raunchy music, right? That's not his point. He says that focusing on the priorities of the Christian faith does have a trickle-down effect on other things in your life. And we wonder, did Mordecai take a stand on the wrong issue? I wonder. I mean, come on, man. Just bow down and move on with your day. At stake is not worship. It's just formality. Mordecai's friends attempt to convince him to bow down to Haman, but Mordecai insists that he cannot because he's a Jew. Eventually, word gets back to Haman that someone is not bowing down, and Haman is livid. Here's verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down to pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Okay, we have seen this kind of response in Esther, in the book of Esther. When Queen Vashti refused the summons of, of King Ashwaris, Esther 1, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. That is an intense response. <laughs> the response of King Ashwaris and Haman indicates what keeps them up all night. They want complete allegiance from people. When they make a command, the people are expected to obey. Anything less will result in punishment. That's the kind of leaders they are, speaking of Ashuerus and Haman. After hearing the news, Haman overreacts by hatching a plan to kill Mordecai, and not just Mordecai, but all the Jews throughout Persia. That's his response to one guy not bowing down to him. This would mean the destruction of most Jews in the entire world. His plan involved persuading the king to receive his approval. Haman knows how to influence the king, so he gives him a large sum of money. He's like, I know how to make this work. Here's some cash. At this point in the story, the king abdicates his responsibility to Haman and gives him unilateral power to destroy the Jews. The king gives Haman his signet ring, which symbolizes the king's authority. Now the question is, when should Haman carry out his plot? I want you to notice a fascinating feature of this particular passage. It's going to connect actually with the last chapter in Esther. In the first month of the year, and 12 years actually into the reign of King Ashuerus, lots were cast, think gambling, think rolling dice, lots were cast to determine when to carry out this genocidal plot. The lot told Haman to kill all the Jews during the 12th month of the year. Now, the Hebrew word for lot is per. P-U-R, if we want to transliterate it into English. It's the Hebrew word the Jews use to commemorate God's plan of redemption in the book of Esther. So again, we're making connections in Scripture. When we get to the end of Esther, they're going to use this exact word to say, this, we're going to celebrate this day. What are we going to call it? Purim. Why? Because Haman cast lots and God was providentially at work in that situation. Also, in this story of of God's providence and the evil actions of men, we'd be good to remember Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap. Like you throw the dice. Here we go. I want, I'm playing Yahtzee. I need, I need uh, what, five sixes? Here we go. But at the end of the day, every decision is from the Lord. If you didn't get that Yahtzee, it's because of God. And he's sovereign. If you got it, it's because God is sovereign over that. And you can yell Yahtzee and say, you are sovereign, <laughs> whatever. 
For reasons we do not know and are above our pay grade, God allowed Haman 11 months to plot and Mordecai to plan. What we do know is that God was absolutely sovereign over the casting of lots, as I just said. Haman was free to cast the lot, and God was sovereign over his actions. Now, it's worth pointing out how Haman convinced the king to exterminate the people of God. Haman tells the king a series of lies. Take a look at verse 8. And this is how wicked people act and respond and speak. There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws. So that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Now let me see if you can spot the lies, but I'll just share them with you if you didn't spot them. First, Haman does not identify the alleged perpetrators, right? He's, he's leaving out a ton of details, at least in this scene. The king, because... I think he's just a weak-minded individual, does not ask for more details. Second, Haman implies that the law of the Jews are in contradiction with the Persian law. Think Old Testament law. For years, this has not been a problem. So it seems Haman is trying to invent an issue. We just know, just from reading the book of Esther, that Jews were assimilating into Persian culture. Mordecai worked at the gate of the palace. Esther is the queen. So he's inventing an issue here. And last, and this is the blatant lie, Haman says outright that the Jews do not follow the king's laws. Right? So not giving all the information is dishonest. The false comparison of Jewish law and Persian law is a potential non sequitur. And the last assertion is patently false. If Haman was in an actual court of law, he would be laughed out of the room. But like, you got nothing, man. Where's your evidence? Just take me at my word. No, it's not how this works. But he is not in a court of law. He is with a person who is easily persuaded. And Haman had no problem receiving the king's blessings. I mean, just another reminder of what I said earlier about what kind of leaders you put in place. And in America, it's we the people. And I'm not telling you who to vote for. I'll never do that. Never. But you see the result of wicked leaders. Just a weak leader, King Ashuair says. If killing a segment of people resulted in a greater grip on power and more money, so be it. Ashuair is good with it. The way Haman is going to put an end to the people of God is to create a new law. And the new law does not mince words. Here are verses 13 and 14. Letters were sent out by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. Like, the author here puts that in just to let you know it's everybody. Not just the men, not just the young boys, as we see in other parts of Scripture. Like, it's everyone, all Jews. Men, women, children, young, old, in one day, in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by the proclamation to all the people to be ready for that day. Like, we're gonna, I'm not going to get into this. I'm going to point out the last verse of Esther 3. Like, after all this was done and it was put into motion, Haman and the king actually just sit down and have a drink while the city's in chaos because of this law. They don't care. They don't care. They just want power. 
Now, you would be excused if your mind made a beeline to the Holocaust of World War II at this point, right? The new law in Persia smacks of the same ruthlessness of Nazi Germany. But it is the words of Christ that put evil and persecution into perspective. Like, again, Esther 3 is this dark cloud over the story. And as Christians, how do we think of evil and wickedness in the world? We turn to Christ. Christ is very clear about how we are to think about wickedness and evil. Listen to this from Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12. Blessed are you, let that sink in before I move forward. Blessed are you. And at this point, you're thinking of something nice and cheery that Jesus is going to say. Blessed are you when you get a new car or whatever. No. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. We just stop. That's a sermon right there. Blessed are you when that happens. Not, oh man, I'm sorry about that. No. Blessed are you. And they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What we're seeing in part here is the price of being a follower of Jesus Christ, to be a part of God's people. Blessed are you when all those attacks come at you. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. And here's what Jesus says in the Gospel of John. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Man. Blessed are you, Mordecai. Blessed are you, Esther. Even when a wicked person like Haman hatches a plot to kill all of your people, all of God's people, blessed are you. Blessed are you, Sean Powers, when the enemy comes at you and tries to bring you down. And when the enemy and the devil says things you don't like and they hurt your feelings. Blessed are you. Blessed are you if I would die tomorrow unjustly. And the, and the evil one was at work. Blessed am I because I follow Jesus. That's why I'm blessed. That's why you are blessed regardless of what happens to you in this world of good and evil. You are blessed because of what Christ has done for you. I I understand that's sobering. And I hope it is. I get it. These are hard words. The black cloud of Esther 3 is just sobering. What we see in Esther 3 is that for God's people, there will be times when everything will look bleak. History, Holy Scripture, and present realities throughout the world affirm the trials and sufferings of God's people. And here is the message that is important for all Christians to remember. There is evil in this world, and the evil one hates you. The devil hates you not going to mince words, not going to lie to you, not going to try to paint it in a lighter way. That's just the truth. He hates you because he first hated Christ and the presence of Christ dwells in you and is doing good in your life. But you are never a victim even though the devil hates you and you experience unpleasant realities. 
These words are not popular in our culture. You are not, these five words, you are not a victim. Not. Because of Jesus. Because of Christ. Why do I have the authority to make that kind of audacious statement? Especially what we see in Esther 3. Here's why. In the book of Esther, we are seeing how God's people are faced with hardship and potential extermination. Esther was an orphan. She didn't have her parents. It's hard to figure out the character of Mordecai, yet God is using flawed men and women to bring about his good purposes of redemption. You are flawed, and yet God is at work in you. Is not Esther's story of rags to riches a metaphor of redemption, right? And is not God using Mordecai to bring about good purposes? Of course he is. Absolutely. At the end of the day, God takes care of his people. And God's care and love is most clearly displayed at the cross of Jesus Christ. Like, where's the beeline to the cross? Because like every road leads to Rome, every scripture, every passage in the Bible leads to Jesus right there. Because the greatest picture of redemption, the greatest moment of redemption, was when Christ died on the cross. That's what Esther 3, and as we turn the page to Esther 4, is pointing us to, to Jesus. All these stories of redemption in the Bible, including what we see here, point to a hill where God finally and fully redeemed, rescued, and saved his people to himself. And in the process, the power of death and sin have been destroyed for God's people. You live freely. Christian, you live freely, regardless of what happens to you, regardless of what the devil tries to do to you. An edict could come down tomorrow that all Christians are going to die, and yet God is still good, and you are still free. You're still free because of Jesus. You live freely with hope and joy because of Christ. Yes, we continue to fight against evil and for good, knowing the battle has already been won by Christ. Christ has secured the victory at Calvary. The title of this particular sermon is, Will Evil Prevail? Will evil prevail? That's what I titled it. And the answer is no. It will not prevail. It's bleak in Esther 3. It is dark. But Lord willing, we'll see next week God's redemptive plan to continue to unfold. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.